0: Welcome. This is the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast, episode 10. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. A construction driver on a bulldozer spies a pile of clothing in a weedy vacant lot near Santa Monica Airport. Underneath the powder blue jacket and wine-colored silk dress is the body of a nude woman bludgeoned beyond recognition. Early reporting suggests the victim has been shot in the face and cut with a knife. Neither is true. She's been struck in the forehead with a socket wrench, so the hole is visible and misinterpreted as an entrance wound. The body has been aggressively kicked, and the edge of the killer's shoe leather has split her at the mouth and the limbs, creating the impression that she's been cut with a knife. Her chest has been stomped until her ribs pierce her lungs and heart, causing hemorrhage and death. There are muddy heel prints running the length of her body. Her neck is broken, her arms broken, her jaw broken. The press will describe the severe damage by stating her face has been turned into a pulp. Mercifully, It's most likely the victim is unconscious when the stomping takes place. No immediate clues at the crime scene offer any leads as to the woman or the killer's identity. There are strands of black hair under the fingernails, evidence of a struggle. The fur-lined powder blue jacket has a label tag, Adler and Adler, a black leather purse has a note inside referring to a cabin camp in Minnesota on one side and a household budget on the reverse. The rent is $60 a month. Her brown shoes are tossed 50 feet in opposite directions. A pink brassiere and two handkerchiefs are found closer to the body on the muddy ground. These are not clues, only the flotsam and jetsam of the crime scene. The woman will be identified by fingerprints as Jeannie French, who has recently been arrested for driving under the influence. On day one, the press focus on the lipstick message left on the muddy body. The headline in the Herald Express reads, Werewolf strikes again. Kills L.A. woman writes B.D. on body. Mad killer in frenzy stomps over victim. And in the Los Angeles Times, another woman slain, victim of mutilation murder. Every effort is made to highlight similarities to the Black Dahlia case. Quote, A homicidal maniac struck here again today and dumped the nude and mutilated body of another woman in a vacant lot, giving baffled police a second Black Dahlia-like murder to solve. And, The still attractive Miss French, pioneer airline hostess, aviatrix actress, former nurse and companion to oil heiress Millicent Rogers, left her husband a few hours before death, angry because he refused to go someplace with her. Police believe that the man she found to go someplace was the man who kicked her to death. She had not been raped. The initials B.D. were printed in lipstick across her body, and police said they indicated either the killer was the fiend who tortured and mutilated Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, less than a month ago, or that he was morbidly imitating the Slayer. One paper, the Pasadena Star News, tries to give away the obscene word that cannot be printed, and shows dots where the letters should be, as in dot, 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 U, B, D. Like Elizabeth Short, the body of Jeannie French is dumped nude in the weeds of a vacant lot, found by a passerby. And these references to her being an actress and beautiful echo the Black Dahlia as well. The mutilation is equally shocking and horrific. However, in no way is this a copycat killing. Unlike Elizabeth Short, Jeannie French has led a life. Her film career, marriage, and child are real, not imaginary. Jeannie was the flying nurse in South America who had made headlines and appeared in bit parts in the movies. She is at this point in her life an abusive drunk whose fame is behind her. Perhaps she fears her life is slipping away. Unlike the murder of Elizabeth Short, There is no evidence here of premeditation. This killer used a weapon from his car trunk and rode on Jeannie's belly with lipstick from her purse. Unlike Elizabeth Short, the killer made an effort to hide the body under the pile of clothing. Unlike Elizabeth Short, the killer obliterates Jeannie French's identity with a blunt instrument. Elizabeth Short is tortured killer wants to watch the black dahlia die the weapon of choice is articulate and elizabeth's body is uniquely mutilated bisected then drained of blood and scrubbed before displaying the corpse in a chosen spot to maximize shock the killer of elizabeth short obsesses about the coverage in the newspaper and communicates with editors and challenges the police at the autopsy, Dr. Frederick Newbar states that Jeannie French had chopped suey as her last meal approximately an hour before her death. Newbar examines the initials on the abdomen as they declare not B and D, but P and D. So the message reads, fuck you, PD, text, and perhaps another word, sometimes guessed to be Andy. And P.D. may mean Peter Dominguez or Paul DeRosa, not the police department, if we think of the killer as a man who is signing his work. A few writers hypothesize that Texas may refer to the fact that Jeannie Axelrod Thomas is originally from Texas. Why would the killer, who stomps Jeannie French to death with his shoes, care where she was born? He's not mailing a package back to Texas, He's signing his work. When I grew up in California, Tex was as common a nickname as Red. Signing off with lipstick on a muddy and slippery skin is not common, and not something a person would have previous experience with. One can understand how the words and letters are imperfectly printed. The lipstick is slick, and the flesh is wet and curved. At the inquest, her husband, Frank French, testifies calmly and honestly that he loves his wife and would not harm her. He's believable. The killer has small shoes, size 6. Frank French's landlady states he does not leave the house that night. The killer drives his car and Jeannie's car. Frank doesn't drive. The police check French's shoes and realize is not a fit for the crime. Jeannie French's son, David Rather, spoke at the inquest, quote, Sometimes she went to cocktail parlors. She made friends easy, awful easy. She went out alone sometimes. She used to talk to me pretty good. I think she would have told me if anything was wrong. She's gone now, and I'm sure she'd want me to say the right thing. She made a lot of her own trouble. Her husband tolerated a lot from her. He was a tolerant man, a very tolerant man. I don't know of anyone I would suspect. The police find Jeannie French's car. No prints. Not on the wine bottle or the purse or the lipstick tube. Jeannie French's alcohol level is twice the legal limit. There are no witnesses... Of the dump site, the nearest house is over a mile away. Some newspapers suggest the site is a lover's lane. Hmm, It isn't. However, the killer may have considered to be as good a place as any at 2.35 a.m. There is fresh blood in the street, it appears. Jeannie was knocked unconscious in the road with a socket wrench and then dragged 15 feet, then stomped to death. So it's not really a dump the way Norton Avenue is a dump site. As of the 12th, the press have no suspects and the police have no clues. There are seven witnesses who have seen the likely killer with Jeannie French at two restaurants, a piano bar, and a parking lot. The killer is described as slight, short, dark-skinned or dark-complected, perhaps Latin, with a pencil mustache. This is very un Dahlia Avenger-like to have so many witnesses. And then there's this chop-suey mystery at 2 a.m. The first significant sighting of Jeanie French on the fateful night is at the Plantation Café on Washington Boulevard at 7.30 p.m. She's with two men, These men at a table have ordered food. Jeannie is intoxicated and on the payphone, speaking loudly to the person on the phone. Christina Studnicka, waitress, hears Jeannie say, Don't bring a bottle. The landlady doesn't allow it. Then shouting across the restaurant to the men seated at the table, Don't put any liquor in the car. Studnicka implies the men joust over who will accompany Jeannie. However, the next location we know of for Jeannie French is at her home on nearby Military Avenue where she meets her estranged husband. When Frank French speaks at the coroner's jury, he states his wife had been drinking and he tried to leave but, quote, she insisted and dragged me into the bedroom and a woman who lived there in the house separated us. I took my clothes and went home. At 9.30, Jeannie drives north to the Turkey Bowl Cafe and has a cup of coffee. She talks with the operator of the drive-in cafe, Ray Fetcher. Jeannie tells Ray her husband is sadistic, that he likes dark things, and he's beaten her several times. Then she raises a pair of dark glasses to show Ray her two black eyes. I have three thoughts about Jeannie wearing sunglasses at night and showing strangers her black eyes. One, her look makes her easy for witnesses to recall seeing her. Two, before Jeannie speaks, the story tells itself. She's been wronged. Her husband is a villain, and it justifies why she's alone, why she's upset, and perhaps to herself why she's drinking. Three. Her black eyes means she looks like a victim to a predator. Witness Marshall Watkins stops at the turkey bowl to buy a newspaper and notices the intoxicated Jeannie French talking to another drunk woman. As Marshall waits for his change, he hears Jeannie referred to a bum and hears Jeannie say, quote, Just like the Black Dahlia, What Watkins hears is remarkable in retrospect. However, at the time, why would he carefully listen to a conversation between two intoxicated women? He does notice Mrs. French has parked her car for free to off from the curb and that she drives off erratically at 10 p.m. The coffee has had little effect. Jeannie heads back to Culver City and enters an unnamed bar at 10 421 Venice Boulevard. She's alone, and shows bartender Earl Holmes her black eyes. Jeannie declares she's going to commit her husband to the Sawtelle Veterans Hospital Neuropsychiatric Ward the next day. It's now 11 p.m., and Jeannie visits Frank at his rooming house. According to Frank's testimony, they walk outside the rooming house to have privacy for about 40 or 50 minutes. They quarrel. She hits him in the face with her purse and drives off about 11.50. Frank, worried about how drunk she is, assumes she's going home. In fact, Jeannie drives south back to Culver City and is next seen in the company of a man with a thin mustache and dark skin at the Piccadilly drive-in around midnight. Carhop Anthony Anzoni recognizes Jeannie as a regular customer. Mrs. Tony Manalais gets a good look at the male companion. The killer drives off with Jeannie at 1.15 and they park across the lot to go inside the Pan American Bar where they sit at the bar stools nearest to the door and listen to piano player Sam Young play tunes. Bartender Joseph Nesco remembers the couple and describes the quote boyfriend as medium small and dark complected. Jeannie leaves a tip for the piano player who watches as the couple goes outside and gets into the boyfriend's 1936 Pontiac or Chevy sedan at closing time, 2 a.m. This car is brown, beaten up, dirty. According to her autopsy, Jeannie has chopped suey. The press initially report that the LAPD is unable to locate the Chinese restaurant. But on the 13th of February, the San Bernardino Sun tells its readers the police have located the cafe. Only the Sun, no other papers offer the scoop, and the sun doesn't name the place. But a visit to the 1947 Culver City Yellow Pages lists an ad for the New Shanghai Cafe at 9345 Washington Boulevard, east of the plantation in downtown Culver City at Ince and Culver. It's a Trader Joe location today. The cafe is open till 3 a.m. serving food and beer, and offers takeout. Do they have chop suey? The ad says the new Shanghai Cafe is owned and operated by Chinese, and brags, quote, if it's Chinese food, we serve it. I have no confirmation that this is the restaurant, and there's no evidence since no witnesses have come forward to the press. One has to imagine a woman wearing dark glasses in a restaurant would be remembered. Perhaps they had takeout and ate in the car. As Jeannie French's son said, she made a lot of her own trouble. It's 2.30 a.m. and Jeannie is an angry drunk in an inebriated stranger's car. Similar to the murder of Jerry Burns in 1939, perhaps the murder took place because the sex did not. Jeannie's 1929 Roadster is seen at 3.15 a.m. The Piccadilly Drive-In is a 24-hour cafe. Tony Anglione, watchman and janitor, sees the Ford driven into the parking lot between the cafe and the Pan American Bar. Tony notices when a short man, slight in build, runs away from the car. Why take that risk? Why park the car where the killer could be seen by a witness? Jeanie's car must have been parked where she met him for the second time that evening, so likely that car is at the killer's home and he has to move it. Jeannie was too drunk to drive, so it's there. She must have parked at his house around midnight. Then they left in his beat-up brown car. This suggests the killer lives close enough to the parking lot to walk home or run home. He must be in a comfort zone as he runs away. Why else choose this parking lot? Timing is crucial. If the killer parks the car at 3.15, he's killed her at three, that only gives him 15 minutes to drive home and to get into Jeannie's car. Does he have time to change his shoes, maybe his shirt and pants? He has to be worried about blood on his clothing as he's going to run away from the car. He has to be careful. He doesn't leave fingerprints on Jeannie's car. It only makes sense that he would drive to the parking lot because it's close to his house. I would think the killer has to live within a five to eight minute drive from the plantation cafe. So he lives in Culver City, likely within a 10 to 20 minute walk. Perhaps the police canvassed the area with photos of Jeannie's chopped 1929 Ford Roadster. Perhaps someone would have noticed a 20-year-old car outside a man's house after midnight, but apparently not. It's an interesting question why Grandview as a location for death. It's not a dump site like Norton Avenue, yet the question Why Grandview is a surprisingly similar yet different question than why Norton Avenue. Where is the killer of Jeanne French going? North on Sentinella. Toward what? In contrast, the Black Dahlia Avenger knows he's going to the Norton Avenue location. So Norton Avenue was planned and Grand Avenue was not. But these are both vacant, middle-of-nowhere places. That means that Norton Avenue would have to be discovered by the Black Dahlia Avenger as a nowhere, obviously when he's on a trip to someplace else. How else would the Black Dahlia Avenger know that Norton Avenue is a street of undeveloped lots filled with weeds and a place where children ride bicycles? Unless he's a real estate salesman. Otherwise, he would have to discover it when he was going from one place to another, right? You only find nowhere when you come by it one day on the way to someplace else. For example, a man driving from USC to Loyola Marymount University might pass through Limerick Park and see Norton Avenue. But where is the destination for the man accompanying Jeannie French? One well, has to imagine the killer is driving her somewhere when he pulls her over in a nowhere. Why are they going back to Santa Monica? The police locate another suspect on day three, a house painter named George Witt, age 40. He was seen at that same unnamed bar on Venice Boulevard where bartender Earl Holmes's ear is bent by Jeannie French on her last night. Witt's face has cuts and bruises and police hold him by making up a technical charge of robbery. Witt, who lives in Palm Springs, met Jeannie and Frank French when he painted the apartment on Military Avenue. After Frank French moves out, Jeannie and George Witt have a few dates. The police eliminate Witt as a suspect within 24 hours. Witt burns his shoes, even though his shoe size is one of the reasons he's eliminated. Well, of course he does. Why would he trust the police when they start the investigation by accusing him of a crime that he didn't commit, just to hold him for questioning? Not everyone trusts the police in 1947, and for good reasons. Remember Ernest Tate, the 30-year-old Negro janitor and ex-prize fighter, who worked at the apartments where Georgette Bauerdorf lived. Tate never goes back to his job. Why would he put himself in a place where a witness could decide that Tate looks suspicious? Most true crime enthusiasts recall the murder and dismemberment of Susan Dagan on Monday, January 7, 1946. The 65-year-old janitor in the building where Dagan lived was severely beaten by the police during 48 hours of questioning. He does not confess. He does sue later. The boy that does confess, Bill Herons, said he was interrogated around the clock for six consecutive days, beaten by police and not allowed to eat or drink. Police poured ether on Herons' testicles. They punch him in the stomach while he's chained to a hospital bed. They give him sodium pentothal without permission or without defense lawyers present. Why is this applicable? because fear of the police is real. It impacts the investigation on multiple levels. We will never know how many witnesses declined to come forward. A witness had to be concerned that the police might decide that they were the last person to see Jeannie French or Beth Short alive. George Witt or Ernest Tate may have had information that could have helped the police, but there's a good reason that every lawyer advises to say nothing. There is a witness in the Jeannie French murder who could have helped police find the killer. Waitress Christina Stadnika saw two men at the table at the Plantation Cafe at 7.30. Who was that second man? What a difference it would make if they located him. He clearly knew the other man. turning our focus to the perception of Jeannie French, from the first headline, and she is another woman. We remember Jeannie's name today and discuss the facts of the case only because of the potential Black Dahlia connection. Another woman is language one might typically hear in divorce court. The flying nurse has lived a life of accomplishments. World War II nurse, pioneer airline hostess, private nurse for the worldly rich, who travels to Paris and to Manhattan. A bit of a contrarian, but a courageous and rebellious woman who breaks the glass ceiling and then fails at domestic life. Jeannie may have felt more comfortable in a parachute than an apron, and she lived a life that ends in tragedy. In death, however, her destiny is to be a moon to the Black Dahlia planet. Simply, Jeannie is reduced to being another woman because her horrific murder happens on February 10th, not January 10th. Imagine that. Because of the way the press creates perception, Jeannie French is reduced to an X on the Black Dahlia map because she's been murdered in the wrong month. These headlines that describe the deaths of Jeannie French and Elizabeth Short as mutilation murders serve to create a false sense of commonality. It's misleading, and this is a misconception that bleeds over to other myths of association. The focus on the potential that the mad butcher of Kingsbury Row as a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder exists only because the killer, also known as the Cleveland torso murderer, purportedly sent a letter to the Cleveland police in 1938 saying, You can rest easy now. I've come out to sunny California for the winter. In the letter, the author claims to have buried a victim's body on Century Boulevard between Crenshaw and Western in Los Angeles. No body is ever found. The mad butcher of Kingsbury Row is a missionary serial killer. His victims were destitute inhabitants of a shantytown creek bed area on the outskirts of Cleveland. The work of a missionary serial killer is self-justified because he's cleansing society of the unworthy. This is not a lust killing like the Black Dahlia case. The butcher has killed seven men and five women. He beheads his victims, and these victims have their limbs and heads disposed in different locations. The men are castrated. At minimum, 12 victims, more than 20 is likely, but 12 are assigned to the Mad Butcher. Most of these bodies are recovered a year after the murder, and so it's possible that some victims have never been found. Shade with the Black Dahlia case or the flying nurse. The only commonalities are the gruesome nature of the crime, the size of the headlines, and the amount of fear instilled in the public. The basis of these clickbait theories is only that, that fear and headlines. The torture of Elizabeth Short, as we know, is articulate and planned. It's interesting, though, after she is dead, the killer diverts to angry mutilation, the slicing of the breast, the scooping of the tattoo, the cuts to the sex organs, does demonstrate a mutilation brutality. But then the killer reverts to articulation and planning as he drains the blood, scrubs the body, and readies it for display. It's the articulation that makes the Black Dahlia murder unique, not the brutal mutilation. This evolution from torturer to brute to mortician is the journey of the Avenger that these clickbait noisemakers fail to consider. But what happens if I examine the three parts of Jeanie French's death? He strikes her in the face with a tool found in his car. Then he drags her to the mud and stomps on her face, her neck, her arms, and chest. A bone pierces her heart. This is hard physical work. The weapon is his body. Then he picks up the lipstick case, which belongs to her, something feminine and personal. Women choose their color, they choose their brand. He signs off using her lipstick, then hides the body under her clothes, and Jeannie disappears from view. He hides his work after signing it. So he violently hits her with a tool to shut her up. He unleashes an inhuman amount of anger as he extinguishes her life. But then why leave a note? It's an oddly personal act after violently depersonalizing Jeannie French by obliterating her face and crushing her body. I associate notes with suicide, not murder. And fuck you is a bit redundant. After you have done what he has done, who is the killer communicating to? So many interesting questions in the Jeannie French murder as a standalone murder. And this path in the Black Dahlia, from torturer to brute to mortician, is not what we see in the Genie French murder. It's all brute from the very beginning, from the point that he strikes her face to when he covers her body. The killer is a brute who silences, a brute who crushes, and a brute who justifies himself in writing, and then places her clothes as if he's stuffing in an envelope There is motion in his actions in the sense that the tool is impersonal, then his shoe is personal, and the body then is made invisible. The body is equally hidden from the public as it's hidden from himself. The Black Dahlia Avenger has so many more layers. The torturer, the brute, the mortician all have needs. These multiple needs almost speak to multiple personalities. The Black Dahlia Avenger, of course, does not hide the body from the public or from himself. There's a fascinating Black Dahlia story involving David Lynch meeting with Jigsaw John St. John at the Musso and Frank restaurant over dinner. St. John shares a black and white photo of the corpse on Norton Avenue and asks Lynch, what do you see? Lynch. An enormous, curious person when it comes to the Black Dahlia murder is America's most surrealist director. And he's fascinated and studies every detail, noting the mint condition of the photograph, the depth of focus. And he says, let me look at it for a long time because I knew there was something he wanted me to see. But after a while, I said to him, I don't see it. He smiled and took the photo away. And so Lynch continues, I kept thinking of this thing like an anvil burning in my head. Then suddenly I knew what it was. That picture was taken at night with a flash and it opens up a whole realm of possibilities regarding the case. Indeed, this indicates more items sent to the police than we were aware of previously. The photo is a trophy, proof of accomplishment. It explains why he felt uh, no problem giving back these other trophies. And certainly, it means he has a dark room and camera equipment, so the killer has a middle-class level of income. So the photography may be the vector that connects the path of the killer to the very photogenic Elizabeth Short. The body of Jeanne French is invisible. The body of the Black Dahlia is visible. So. There is an indication of so much planning here as well to bring the camera, perhaps a tripod, pose the body, have time to set up the shot. The planning involved in the murder suggests that the Black Dahlia Avenger may be a serial killer, and it begs the question that isn't easily answered, how can the police know when a serial killer begins killing? And so I'm gonna quote John Douglas's commentary on the Black Dahlia case because I find it very appropriate. Quote, Elizabeth Short longed for something that always eluded her. She was young and emotionally vulnerable and needy with a highly dependent personality. Because of her lifestyle, she was a high-risk victim. Like Blanche Dubois, she relied on the kindness of strangers. She could easily be targeted by anyone who wanted to dominate or hurt women. He could have spotted her a mile away. To do what he did to his victim, both anti-mortem and post-mortem, he'd also have to have a house or an apartment. It could be small and run down, as long as it was private, with access to running water, where he would know he would not be interrupted. So now we know the unsub can't have been poor, at least not compared to his victim. He had to have some money for rent as well as car expenses. And this is not the type of crime we'd expect a jealous boyfriend to commit in the heat of passion. Nor is it the action of a frustrated suitor who in a drunken frenzy murdered her when he learned this girl was the ultimate tease. These scenarios, or one involving a female offender, don't match the profile of this unsub as evidenced by the crime. Lust crime killers have disorganized personalities, yet this unsub was able to imagine, plan, and carry out this time-consuming, complicated crime. For this reason, we'd expect him to have some criminal history before his encounter with Beth Short. You don't jump into this kind of thing without some criminal evolution and development. If we saw this case today in isolation, we'd still know immediately that we are dealing with a serial killer. One more thing. There's a theory concerning the placement of the body of Elizabeth Shorten on Norton Avenue. It's suggested that the positioning of the arms is inspired by a relationship of the killer to the works of Man Ray. Steve Hodel sees a similarity between Elizabeth Short's bisected body and Man Ray's photograph, the Minotaur. Indeed, when the two photographs are placed side by side, I can see it. But I could also place a picture of Elizabeth Short next to a picture of a woman celebrating the Day of the Dead. And that resemblance in the manner in which sugar skull makeup mimics the slice across the mouth, along with the dark eyes and the flowers and the hair is remarkable but that doesn't mean that Elizabeth Short was killed by a psychopath who celebrated a grotesque Halloween variation on a cold January night. The suggestion that art inspires death is cocktail party conversation and nothing more. It takes us far beyond the idea of a killer taking a photo at night with a flash as a trophy. There's no intellectual basis for any conclusion that links surrealism and murder. The shock of surrealistic images was purposeful. The art movement was a response to the horror of World War I. It's not an excuse for external violence and bloodshed. Dismembering is what war does. Soldiers and nations are cut to pieces. Allow me to turn this around by asking the question of the day. Raise your hand if you've been to the Louvre in Paris and observed the Greek statue without arms. And upon leaving the museum, you would thought, well, I'm inspired to hack the limbs off attractive women in the manner of Venus de Milo. No, of course not. Death and the fear of death inspires art, not the other way around. The troubled figure, for example, at the center of Edward Munch's The Scream is inspired by a Peruvian mummy that the artist observed at a Paris exposition. Surrealist images challenge and inform us. The soul of art inspires internal activity, retrospection, dialogue, and debate. The idea that art inspires death is a notion that's little more than chewing gum for a lazy brain. We learn about violent lust criminals by comparing one crime to similar crimes, not by walking through a museum or leafing through a gallery catalog. Steve Hodel sincerely believes his father is a serial killer. He concludes that George Hodel murdered Georgette Bauerdorf, Ora Murray, Jeannie French, Lillian Dominguez, Gladys Kern, Mimi Boomhauer, Jean Spangler, and Louise Springer, in addition to Elizabeth Short. There is no reason to embrace that supposition. One only needs to examine the various signatures of these different murders to understand there is no one-size-fits-all solution to these crimes, and I think we've handled it very well in this episode. Most mystery crime readers may not be aware of the murder of Lillian Dominguez. She was a 15-year-old girl stabbed while walking with her friends after a school dance in a safe Santa Monica neighborhood on October 3, 1947. She was attacked by a stranger who ran at her with a needle-like knife and delivered a blow to the chest. Lillian did not originally understand that she'd been stabbed. She said, that man touched me. I can't see. She collapses to the sidewalk and then dies on the way to the hospital. Originally, the criminal investigation centered on Hispanic youth gangs because knifing is seen as the weapon of choice in Latin crimes of passion. But the police are wrong initially. This is not a gang. It's alone, a lone assailant, and they, as the attacks continue, he's given the name The Jabber. On September 2nd, Barbara Jean Morris, age 14, was stabbed in the breast near her home on Euclid Avenue in Santa Monica. It's 10.30 a.m. and Barbara was waiting for a bus to go swimming when a wild, dark-haired, 27-year-old man came up and, quote, hit her in the chest. The blade misses the heart. Barbara lives as Lillian died. These other murders, for example, or Murray's companion was identified as Roger Lewis Gardner, age 26, 10 years younger than George Hodel. Mimi Boomhauer and Jean Spangler disappeared. There's no body. There's no crime scene. How could there be any similarity? The primary commonality for these deaths is the fear inspired Herald Examiner headlines of unsolved violent crimes against women. Steve Hodel is sincere but I find his theory of multiple killings to be unproven. However difficult it is to disprove a theory, so let's instead ask another question. If murder and torture, mutilation and body placement are art-inspired, why would George Hotel keep killing but stop making art? The body placement of Jeanie French does not show any artistic influence, She's bludgeoned in the road, dragged through the mud, brutally stomped, and buried under her own clothing. Even if everyone can agree that the choice to place Elizabeth Short's body in a certain way creates an image that is satisfactory to an inner urge of the killer, there's no reason to suggest there's a correlation as to why the killer would have tortured Elizabeth. There's no association that this is an idea that it's evidence of motivation or guilt or appreciation of art. The manner in which society digests movies and stories plays a significant role in the way we resolve mysteries in our head. We seek connections. Our brain will see a cloud shaped like Godzilla or a Cheeto shaped like Jesus on the cross and feel satisfied. In the recent miniseries, I Am the Night, Chris Pine plays journalist Jay Singletary, and he has an aha moment about the case when walking through a gallery of surrealistic pieces of art. Body placement of the black dolly on Norton Avenue is not an aha moment in the manner of the rosebud sled scene at the end of Citizen Kane. Conscious or unconscious body placement of Elizabeth Short's corpse doesn't indicate George Hodel's guilt any more than it points to Orson Welles. Until next time.